Promoting the end of adult cannabis prohibition is easy because we have facts, science, reason, compassion, evidence, truth, and logic on our side. It's even easier when researchers catalog it all for us. Learn how to gather the facts on marijuana use, arrests, seizures, rehabs, drug tests, and more on this edition of Drug War Data Mining. Good day, tokers and tokets. Radical Rest back here at the Cannabis Policy Summit at uh, City University of New York. And joining me here at the desk, we have John Hudak from the Brookings Institute. How are you doing, John? I'm pretty good, Russ. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we had you on the show just a little while ago talking about your uh, latest white paper. Have you gotten a lot of great response off of that? Oh, yeah, no, we've had some really great response from it uh, here at the conference and uh, around the country. People have really embraced uh, an institution like ours, really engaging a policy area that typically uh, think tanks aren't engaging, think tanks that aren't are not advocacy organizations uh, engaging. And so it's it's been uh, really positive and, and something we're really proud of at Brookings. You've been spending a lot of time researching this, uh, this issue and now sitting in some of these panels here and hearing some other experts discussing the issue. Do you find any points of contention, any disagreements, or does this fit along with what you've researched? I mean, most of the, the, the disagreements we're hearing today are ones that are, are pretty dominant streams within uh, the literature within the discussion, within the broader conversation we have around legalization, whether it's for rec or for medical. Um, what is, uh, I think, the, the most enjoyable part, though, is all of these uh, discussions, all of these disagreements are being done in a very respectful way. People aren't screaming at each other. People aren't Donald Trump. People aren't acting like it's, it's D.C. They're acting like uh, they want to find the right answer, uh, you hear a lot of different people, and someone has the right answer. Not everyone here does, but but people are talking to each other like professionals, and I think that raises the caliber of cannabis policy in general. When people are having these conversations as professionals, as advocates, as researchers, um, and not just as people throwing themselves with all of the passion and all of the talking points that I think characterize other debates. As we hear a lot of these discussions, they are ranging on a number of policy options for ending marijuana prohibition, uh, comparing uh, Uruguayan models and, and, and Spanish collective models. Even some people are talking longingly about how we used to think of Amsterdam as such the wild child out there in Europe, and now it's almost quaint how they how they do things in Amsterdam. What are your thoughts on some of these different models, and do you think with such a capitalism-heavy American economy uh, that they'd even be possible? Well, I think one of the benefits we're seeing is, is that typically we think of U.S. states as being the laboratories of democracy, but in reality, we have... Uh, the world now is a laboratory of democracy. We have so many different nations with uh, different cultural dynamics, different personal dynamics, different historical uh, trends, and now different cannabis policies. And it, one isn't going to be the right one. But you get to see bits and pieces because everyone is so different. Colorado is different than Washington, is different than Uruguay, is different than Portugal and the Netherlands. They're all attacking different problems sometimes, but they're doing it in different ways. And the best thing is we're learning from it. It's not just throwing away good models or it's not just doing policy for the sake of doing it. We're learning a ton from these different models for good and bad. And, and that can only be, mean good things in the future. I'm interested in the fact that we've got legalization now in four U.S. states and had it for over three years now in two of them. And 
so far, from what I've seen, we haven't seen a, a great increase in harm, if any increases in harm, and maybe even some reductions in harm from people you know, not drinking and driving or not using Oxycontin or pain pills when they can switch out medical cannabis. Uh, so a lot of these discussions, when they talk about these public policies being centered on the idea of protecting the public, I often wonder, from what? Because have we seen any problems so far? Yeah, so there's two points here. First, we haven't seen the sky-falling dynamics that prohibitionists pro- projected would happen, predicted would happen with legalization, whether it be medical or, or especially with recreational. Um, And so I think in some ways, as a policy analyst, you look at that and you think, well, that's a positive thing. The the worst-case scenario hasn't borne out. There are some data that suggest there are positive benefits. There are some data that suggest it's a wash. Um, But it is still critically important to note that when you're looking at policy outcomes and policy consequences, that longer-term views are better. So the sky hasn't fallen yet. It probably won't fall. But it's not to say that we... Uh, shouldn't look at the data long and hard and make sure that there aren't things that need correcting. There's probably going to be things that need correcting. We've seen it a little bit in the states already, and there's going to be more down the road. It doesn't mean the policy's broken. It actually means the policy's working if you respond to these challenges with better policy reforms. There's some uh, consideration in the discussions I've heard so far about the fact that, you know, even now under the limited few states we've had with legalization, a lot of the dynamics of prohibition still exist. For example, the high price. And some of the concern is once you have a full national legalization, the economy of scale takes over and that prohibition risk is gone, prices crash, use goes up, and then the sky starts to fall. Is that a concern? Well, I mean, that's certainly a concern, that prices fall and use goes up. But I think a lot of that perspective comes from this idea that marijuana isn't already in society. I mean, you can get weed for cheap if you want weed for cheap. You might not get it from a dispensary in Denver. You might get it from a guy down the street, but you're going to get it. So this idea that all of a sudden there are going to be this social, this huge social change because all of a sudden there's inexpensive marijuana in America is a totally... A distance It's totally distance from reality. Like I said, there's cheap weed if you want it. You just have to know where to find it. Legalizing in Colorado and Washington and Oregon and Alaska isn't changing that. All right. Well, that's uh, some good perspective. Uh, we're getting, and one of the things I like about this event is we're getting lots of perspectives from different organizations that uh, have different goals in this. And I think it's helpful for us to be d- discussing with each other, and like you said, in a professional manner. Uh, John, what's next for you? Is there another study or paper that you're uh, working on? Well, uh, um, I'm happy to say that I just finished up edits on a book on the history of marijuana policy. It'll be out uh, in the late summer, early fall. It's called Marijuana, a Short History. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It's a short read. It's a punchy read. It's not Brookings-style boring, I promise. Um, and uh, uh, I encourage everyone to pick up a cup. I encourage you to do that too. And John Hudak from the Brookings Institute, brookings.edu. And what was that website for your most recent paper? Brookings.edu slash marijuana mess. There we go. Check it out, folks. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. It's time for the Russ Belleville Show's Cannabis Q&A with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Dr. Earlywine is a professor of psychology at the State University of New York at Albany and a leading author and researcher on cannabinoids and health who pins the Ask Dr. Mitch column for High Times Magazine 
Get your questions ready in our live chat or call in to 971-533-7111 now. Welcome, everybody. We are at the Cannabis Policy Summit here in New York City, City University of New York, sponsored by Botech and uh, Mark Kleiman. And joining me here at the desk, we have Pete Holmes from Washington State. Are you still city attorney in Seattle? I am. Fantastic. I am. I'm Glad halfway to ha- through my second term. All right. Glad to have you here. And. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've spoken. Uh, in 2012, of course, uh, Washington passed I-502, legalized marijuana. We are now going on four years into that experiment. What are the results? How do you do you feel that you were vindicated in some of your positions? Well, vindication is probably a strong word. But, you know, right now we're sweating the details. Um, I remind people that uh, 502 promised legalization regulation and taxation and the regulation part of it is uh what really does take well it's frankly it's glorified plumbing uh there's a lot of details about what works uh you know washington was different than colorado in its approach in that it basically created a legal system from the ground up and consequently they couldn't just flip a switch and suddenly there was a sufficient legal supply to meet demand um we're still uh, shy of the of full capacity under the legal market, and consequently the, the benefits of knocking out the illegal market just through economic forces, if nothing else, is, uh, is still to be attained. And, um, and in Seattle, though, I think that we are actually are having an extremely good experience that I hope will be replicated across the state. We, uh, we need more stores. The mayor and I agree about that. Uh, we need to um, legalize delivery services so that they can be regulated as well. Uh, but we're finding that, you know, we've got illegal delivery systems going on because of that, that old phenomenon that we were talking about with cannabis to begin with, that if you, if you try to prohibit something that is in such high demand, you will fail. It is a, an, an improper and unwise use of your police power. In uh, the f- implementation of I-502, at the very beginning, there were uh, canopy space limits. There were all sorts of recommendations that came from Botech that uh, seemed to be, at least from my perspective as the consumer, uh, counterproductive to my goals. That We had really high prices and not much access. Uh, how has that proceeded, and has there been changes? Is there no longer a canopy, or have they changed that? They have changed that, but you know, I could give you an even more stark example. If you remember right after 502 passed, there was an open debate about whether they were even going to allow outdoor grows. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a wonderful debate on uh, Seattle Times, uh, uh, an online debate about the, the, the merits, the qualities of, of, of warehouse-grown versus uh, sun-grown uh, marijuana. So, um, you know, anytime you're a first adopter, you're going to have to, unfortunately, kind of, you're designing the plane as you're flying it, and, and they're going to have to make adjustments. And I think that, you know, whether it was the lottery for uh, license uh, applicants or the canopy formulas, those were things that they were just trying, how will this work? Right now, of course, we're engaged in trying to figure out now, what do we do with pesticides? And, um, you know, so we're, we're learning uh, on the job. And uh, it's it's really interesting to watch it unfold. So uh, that's a long, broad, rambling answer to your question. But it is kind of the uh, as a wonky lawyer, uh, it is fascinating to me to watch this process unfold. And as we keep uh, continuing to fine tune it, you were a, a big proponent of ca- uh, adult cannabis use clubs uh, mm-hmm. as a way to provide the public that can't smoke in a hotel or outside a, a place to actually use. 
and Washington State went the opposite direction and felonized such a thing, the most uh, draconian punishment for such a, a, a lounge outside of prohibition states. So what is the, the where are we going on that issue? Is there going to be any hope? Classic example of one step forward and then like a whole leap backwards. Uh, that was one of the stupidest uh, examples of legislative overkill I've ever ever seen. In the same legislation where Washington, finally, the legislature um, uh, combined medical use and adult use uh, in you know, a single licensing system, that's when, out of the blue, this prohibition on marijuana lounges came out. It was overkill, it was unnecessary, and uh, again, it's an example that there are still vestiges of resistance despite the overwhelming public vote. Um, my hope is in the next legislature, we could not get it done in the 2016 short session, but hopefully in the 2017 long session, we can at least modify that to say marijuana use lounges are prohibited only uh, in cities and counties where they're not regulating them locally. And Seattle's already provided the model for that. We um, my office worked with uh, Councilmember Nick Licata, now retired, for instance, to design a marijuana lounge, uh, use lounge ordinance. It also required not um, changes in 502, but under our Clean Air Act because of the indoor smoking ban. And we opted uh, for um, uh, a, a, uh, an amendment to allow electronic smoking devices to be used in city licensed lounges. Um, that's our model. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait a year because of the state, uh, the state prohibition uh, and, uh, or the state felony. And, you know, my hope is that we'll get that. That's going to be top of my list uh, to get that done along with licensed delivery systems in the next session. Uh, 502, you mentioned being, you know, building the plane while you're flying it. It's you're the first adopter. Uh, of, so there was some caution in 502 in creating a 5 nanogram per se DUID, mm-hmm. no home grows, and no lounges. The next five states that are looking to legalize don't have the per se DUID, allow home grow, and mandate some sort of licensing for lounges. Do you think passage in those states is going to hasten the change in Washington state? I I do, and I think those states have learned from us. Uh, I also think that we will get to a limited universal home grow. You know, we do have to make sure that uh, the entrepreneurs that stick their necks out while there's still federal prohibition, uh, that that industry succeeds. A regulated industry, I think, is far preferable to criminal prohibition. So um, that's why the, the home grow issue is of concern to some of the, some of the retailers. Uh, I do believe that the natural progression will be limited home grows for every adult. Uh, and that's something that we'll be pushing for in the legislature. The lounges, again, you know, uh, I think that uh, vaporizing technology for both tobacco and cannabis will start to overtake that, that debate. And people will see that as a harm reduction technology mm. that we should be uh, at least not actively discouraging. So um, you're right. The other states are learning from us. Uh, and, uh, and we, in turn, still, I think, have the best model on the ground right now today and and this is all important russ i'll stop rambling but to say that you know it's very much an open question will the other 45 and a half states uh legalize marijuana for adult use and uh they're watching to see how colorado and oregon and washington are doing and i do think that washington uh really does have as as it's fine-tuning it the model of regulatory control that the feds are looking for final question one of the uh one of the uh 
talking points that we had as far as marijuana legalization went was the disparate impact on African-Americans, Latinos. We've seen since legalization in both Colorado and Washington, the remaining arrests are still disproportionately minority, and the people who are making bank in the business are disproportionately white and rich. And there's some feel in the African-American community. I was talking to a young uh, activist from Maryland yesterday who said, yeah, we ha- now we've taken the dealing jobs that used to exist on the street corner, and we've moved them into the dispensary in, in the white neighborhood, and, and we've kind of, is this the success of legalization we want? What would you like to see moving forward to try to address that? I'll do you one better even. You know, when we made possession no longer a crime but rather a civil infraction, uh, Seattle's experience was miserable out of the box. You know, we, um, we must have given uh, those civil citations disproportionately to poor and uh, African-American communities at an even higher rate. Uh, fortunately, the police department, that, that was the work of one or two overzealous officers, and we think that we've corrected that. Um, but, uh, you know, I was a strong proponent of, as we expanded the licensing, to have a merit-based system that would help uh, to address, uh, you know, when we've got minorities that are involved in the business, if they will bring their, that operation into the light of regulation, uh, I wanted to see preferences for them. Uh, my hope is we'll see that. Uh, I've uh, visited uh, uh, one entrepreneur in, in Renton, south of Seattle, that is hoping to come into Seattle. Um, and uh, I want to encourage uh, minorities. They're, they're certainly going to get support from my office in, in trying to, um, to, to be a participant in this new regulated industry. It is so important that it reflect the diversity of our communities. And, uh, you know, there's, the only way to do that is like the rest of this. Uh, Check and see how are we how are we doing? Let's let's monitor and see what are what are the outcomes for criminal justice? What are the outcomes for uh, people actually getting licenses? What do the what do the demographics look like? Don't be afraid to look at that and and uh, and then be really really honest about what are you achieving? Um, the criminal law is going to start taking a much lower. Uh, role in in this as we shift to civil regulation, and my hope is that that alone will help with harm reduction. But there's just no doubt we can't go back precisely because of what you just said, Russ. That um, the the war on drugs has led to mass incarceration across this country of uh, far disproportionately uh, at uh, minority communities. It has wrecked whole communities. It has made us weaker as a nation. And however, cannabis and other drugs start to shape the debate going forward. One thing is clear, we can no longer criminalize drug use. And, um, and that, that is part of the harm reduction technique. Now let's make sure when we regulate it that we, we, we see similar results uh, that are actually helping those same communities that used to be uh, disproportionately targeted. Seattle City Attorney Pete Holmes, thanks for joining us. And if there's anyone in our listening audience in the Seattle area that wants to contact your office, can you give some contact information? Sure. You know, you can also go to my website. is simply seattle.gov forward slash law. Uh, there's uh, regularly uh, lots of information there that I post. For instance, the last year's marijuana memo. I'm working on the next one, marijuana policy memo, kind of outlining some of the very issues that we're talking about where I'm hoping to go uh, in the next legislative session. And uh, close to home, how I'm working with uh, the executive and the city council uh, and the regulators to make sure that we have a, a viable and well-regulated system in the city of Seattle. Thank you, Pete Holmes, for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure.
This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. That marijuana, pot, grass, whatever you want to call it, is probably the most dangerous drug. Some think there won't be room for them in jail. We'll make them. I experimented with marijuana a time or two and I didn't like it and didn't inhale. One major responsibility is to encourage people to use less drugs. Entirely legitimate topic uh, for debate. Radical rant. And uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce Alex Stevens, um, who's the chairman of the International Society for the Study of Drug Policy and our, our partner in putting this on. Alex. Good morning, everyone. Um, the more astute of you will have realised that I am not Rosalie Pecula, as stated on your um, programme. Um, Rosalie has many other things on her plate and has asked me to take her place in the programme. And as Mark stated, I'm the president of the International Society for the Study of Drug Policy, as well as being a professor in criminal justice at the University of Kent in England. And I'd like to add my comments to Brad to welcome you all to New York, even though I would have just arrived myself. But welcome to this wonderful event, um, this opportunity for us all to learn from each other about cannabis policy. Um, thanks to Botech and to Mark Lamer for putting this event together, and um, to New York University for hosting it. Um, the International Society's Study of Drug Policy is, doesn't have a viewpoint itself. It is a forum for the advancement of scholarship on drug policy around the world. And obviously, cannabis is a huge issue within that, and obviously the Americas are hugely important region, not just what's going on in the states of the United States, also what's going on in Canada, in Latin America, Uruguay being an obvious example. Um, the eyes of the world are on New York this week for more than one reason, um, in drug policy, and we have young guests coming up, but we also have this fascinating opportunity to learn from what's going on in the Americas region around cannabis policy. Um, the RSSVP is 10 years old now. Um, and we should thank the successes of the ISSDP in advancing knowledge to many people who are in this room who have spoken at previous events of the ISSDP and perhaps especially um, give our thanks and appreciation to Peter Reuter who is the founding president of ISSDP and has done so much to advance our understanding. During this, session, during this meeting, there will be a stream of panels that are labelled ISSDP sessions. And these sessions that we've put together by inviting scholars around the world to uh, submit abstracts, to present scientific research here, they've been selected on the basis of their scientific quality and their relevance to um, cannabis policy in the Americas. And there will be some excellent papers. Um, some of those papers are already available online. If you go to the ISSDP website, um, there's a which is www.issdp.org. There's a conferences page, and there's a password protected area. The password is ISSDPNYU16, and you'll find some of the papers that are being presented in the cannabis sessions there. Members of the society also have access to most of the papers that have ever been presented at the nine so far annual conferences, and will have access to the papers that are going to be presented at our conference in Sydney, Australia in May, and in our conference in August in Denmark 
in May 2017. In 2018, we hope to return to the America is for our annual conference following our successful event in Bogota in 2013. So we hope that many of you will become even more involved in activities of the ISSDP over the next few years. Um, if you want to know more about us, you can speak to me or to Rosalie or to Thomas Zabransky or to Peter Reuter or to Bo Kilmer, all of whom are members of the board of the ISSDP. Um, so thank you very much for coming today. I look forward to learning from you and with you around campus policy in the Americas. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Policy Summit here at the City University of New York. And at the desk with us, we've got Daniel Sparks from Biotrack THC. How you doing, Daniel? Doing great, Russ. How are you? I'm fantastic. We run into the Biotrack, Biotrack booth just about everywhere we go. But for the people who are new listeners, tell folks what Biotrack is. Absolutely. So we are a seed-to-sale tracking company. We provide inventory tracking for business owners in the private sector, so dispensaries, cultivation centers, extraction, quality assurance labs, and we also have a traceability version of our software that's currently used in five states, so Washington, New Mexico, Illinois, New York, uh, soon to be in Hawaii, and some local governments are currently using our software to track their respective marijuana programs. It's fantastic. And as the marijuana industry has been developing, there's been a lot of changes that have happened, a lot of new regulations. And, for example, my home state of Oregon has come up with a bunch of new regulations this last session. How difficult is that to deal with and to have to adjust to on a session-by-session basis in your software? It's definitely exciting. Um, It's something that we pride ourselves in. So the changes in the law allow us to improve, allow us to create customized platforms for the given jurisdictions that are implementing medical programs, recreational or adult use programs, and every every iteration in between. That's wonderful. So Biotrack THC involved in, like you said, five states now, right? Yes. And, and um, we've got now with the signature in Pennsylvania, 24 medical marijuana states, four legal states, another five that may become legal. Um looks like a, a growth market for you guys. Uh, any any uh, preview on where you'll be next? Uh, everywhere and anywhere. Yeah. So, obviously, like you said, there's a lot of movement that we're anticipating in November. Presidential, le- uh, presidential year, a lot of uh, adult use, medical, all different types of iterations that are going to be on the ballot in various states. And various countries are paying attention to what we're doing. We're sitting in... Uh, in the state that just went medical and ungas is literally this week so the international community is definitely paying attention and biotrack definitely looks forward to contributing to that process in a positive way as an employer and an, uh, a member of the cannabis industry what does biotrack do with respect to giving back to the community giving back to legalization and reform for example i'm glad you asked that so Our our headquarters are located in Florida, and uh, United for Care is the lobby in Florida that's pushing for an expanded medical. Uh, Amendment 2 is on the ballot uh, in Florida. And as far as uh, our community um, involvement, we are uh, flagship members of Women Grow. Um, We are definitely an equal opportunity employer. 
very much a diverse um, makeup within our company, and um, we we contribute in, in every way that we can. Is there a drug testing requirement to work for BioTrack THC? No, there's not. Fantastic. That's my favorite answer. <laughs> Daniel Sparks <laughs> from BioTrack THC. Uh, what's the uh, location on the web if people need to find you guys? Sure. So our website is BioTrackThC.com. All right. Check it out. Daniel Sparks, thanks for joining us. Have yourself a great conference. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, to day two of the Cannabis Science and Policy Summit here at City University of New York, sponsored by Botech Analysis. I'm Radical Russ. We are in the main hall, and joining me at the desk, we have Dan Riffle, formerly with the Marijuana Policy Project, currently working in the U.S. House. How are you doing, Dan? Awesome. How are you, Russ? I'm fantastic. I saw your name on a few of these panels here. Uh, the next one coming up, Ideology and Industry in the Legalization Process. And this is something that's of uh, great import to my listeners because a lot of them come from the activism side, and they see this industry coming in and taking over, and there's some consternation about the fact that we got a lot of guys that know a lot about business, not a lot about weed. Yeah. So what are some of those conflicts that you're going to be talking about, and how could we resolve some of those things? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, you know, I was a prosecuting attorney before I joined the legalization movement. I see it as a waste of law enforcement resources, and that's why I think marijuana should be legal. Um, but, you know, one of the things that uh, Jonathan Calkin said yesterday is that marijuana should be just legal enough. and should be legal enough to meet demand, not so legal as to increase demand. Um, and I see, you know, the industry moving in. And, you know, the industry is a business that sells a product. And the way that any business that sells any product works is to increase demand for their product. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of the folks here at this conference are looking at other models outside of the big business industry perspective that are, you know, more focused on public health, nonprofit models, B Corp models, government monopoly models, those sorts of things. And, you know, their interests may or may not align with, you know, the, the consumer interests, but, uh, you know, it might be a, a situation of strange bedfellows where even though their interests don't necessarily align, they have a common enemy or at least, you know, a, a common uh person that, or entity that they're suspicious of in the industry. Uh, what Jonathan Calkins was talking about and some of the other uh, presenters I've heard have been ideas that were to, would be about keeping the price of marijuana high enough that it, that it deters extra consumption, but doesn't increase a black market, trying to right. find that sweet spot. Is that right. the idea we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that, and then also just making sure that we don't have, you know, advertising practices that, you know, are akin to what we see with alcohol, where... You know, I can't watch a football game on Sunday without getting drunk just watching the thing with all of the ads. Uh, you know, there's liquor store. I live in D.C. There's liquor stores on every corner, uh, mostly in poor and minority neighborhoods. Um, you know, everybody here is a veteran of the, the tobacco years in the, in the 80s and 90s with Joe Camel and, you know, trying to increase their market, trying to, you know, increase the, the amount of the product that, you know, heavy users use. Uh, and those are the type of things that the, the, the science and the health people here are, are, are trying to avoid. Um, which, you know, again, is, is anti-industry, but not necessarily anti-industry in the way that, you know, a lot of consumers are suspicious of the industry. Is it unfair, though, to have that perspective on cannabis when we're talking about people whose experience in public health with alcohol and tobacco? We're talking about two very yeah. destructive drugs. Yeah. And with cannabis, this default that if more people are using it or the people using it are using it more... The default of that being bad seems false to me in that some of those people, some of those new consumers might be switching off of OxyContin, might right. be switching off of other, you know, making substitutes. Is there an argument for that substitution effect? So the first thing I'll say is that, you know, on the scale of harms, marijuana is way down towards the bottom, uh, significantly less harm, less harmful than alcohol, uh, even more significantly less harmful than tobacco. Those are 
deadly drugs that kill people. Uh, marijuana just isn't. You know, the the harm of marijuana, is, as Jonathan Calkins put it yesterday, is not an active negative. It's more the lack of a positive. It's the risk that, you know, somebody might just be wake and bake all day. And, you know, maybe they're functional, but, you know, they're not curing cancer or something. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not a, a huge public health risk. It's not a big harm for me. You know, I will readily recognize that there are jazz musicians who make beautiful music because of uh, cannabis that they consume. There are artists who paint beautiful portraits because of cannabis that they consume. There are, you know, just abnormally high-strung people who need to relax at the end of the day, just like some people who drink alcohol like to have a glass of bourbon or a glass of wine at the end of the day. Um, and that's those are net positives to society. But, you know, at the end of the day, marijuana is a drug. Cannabis is a drug. Uh, it does have dependence potential. There are people who have... Uh, cannabis abuse issues, cannabis dependence issues. And, you know, so you have to weigh those things against each other. So, you know, for me, it's a drug. Uh, it poses problems. It's significantly less problems than than other, you know, more dangerous drugs. But nevertheless, you know, there are risks there that you have to account for and, and build into your policy making. I, I hear them getting ready for the next panels, and I know you're on the next panel, so we better uh, wind this up and let you go. But if people want to learn more about this, do you have any references, resources, or contacts you'd like to give out? Uh, you know, I think if you just go to the website from the, the conference, there's, you know, myriad links and, and articles and bios and those sorts of things. So Cannabis-Summit.org. Dan Riffle, thank you so much. And thank you so uh, good much, luck Russ. with everything you're doing. You too. Well, thank you, tokers and tokettes and non-toking lovers of liberty for tuning in to this special edition of the Russ Belleville Show from the United Nations. Again, apologize. I can't do the regular live show today with all the constraints that are put upon me, but interviews and audio for you on tomorrow's show. For everyone here from CanvasRadio.com in the Big Apple, I'm Radical Russ. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Where you can toke. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon at Rolla J Studios. Just like cannabis. Plus your calls live at 971 
533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the Snoopy Snoopy Poop Dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? Don't tease me. We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical, Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokets, and I'm talking lovers of liberty. Welcome to Toker Talk Radio. I'm Radical Russ coming to you from the United Nations General Assembly Special Session on International Drug Policy, currently headquartered in one of the overflow rooms of the United Nations during the lunch break, putting together today's Toker Talk Radio for you. I'm not allowed to actually record the sessions that are going on here because I don't have a media accreditation pass. But there are so many people around here and so many demonstrations that are happening, especially tomorrow on 420, that will have plenty of audio for you. I also want to encourage you to check out Cannabis Radio News up at CannabisRadio.com. You'll see my post on the initial uh, assembly meetings here at the United Nations where there was a lot of criticism of the outcome document that's already been adopted by the United Nations for failing to address the drug uh, the death penalty for drug crimes and failing to address any sort of harm reduction when it comes to international drug policy. We will continue to report on this over the next couple of days. For today, I'm going to bring you a panel discussion that happened at uh, Mark Kleiman and Botech's Cannabis Policy Summit that took place on Sunday and Monday. This was the opening panel, and it was entitled Regulating Cannabis as a Temptation Good. And by temptation good, they mean cannabis is a good like alcohol or tobacco, prostitution, pornography, gambling, or fast food, something that is a product that's in demand, but a product that can cause societal harm and something for which society needs to exercise controls so that we can mitigate some of those harms. I, of course, disagree with that characterization because unlike everything else I just mentioned, you can show positive effects from cannabis use. Nevertheless, this panel took place and it was the first panel, like I said, of the sessions there. And we'll bring you part one of the panel right now. And on tomorrow's show for Toker Talk Radio, you'll get to hear the rest of it in part two. So here we are right after the break. The Regulating Cannabis as a Temptation Good panel from the Cannabis Science and Policy Summit that took place this Sunday. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, that Policy Summit panel will be next. I'll be heading out to various places around New York to catch up on some of the protests that are going on. And we'll bring them all to you here on Cannabis Radio. So for everyone here for Cannabis Radio and on the streets of New York, I'm Radical Bus. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Warning, hits taken on this show are larger than they appear. 
Do not try this at home. These people are professionals. <coughs> or at least they pay me to say that. This is the Rush Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. So this is this is pretty much the dream team panel, um, with one with one exception for which I have to apologize. Um, Tom Shelley, uh, my teacher, uh, had promised to be here. He was actually originally supposed to chair this panel, and then when he heard what what uh, John was going to talk about, he asked to become a commentator instead, because he thought he had some interesting things to say, and I was, I was looking forward to that. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of um, is that, uh, that Tom did, in fact, serve on my dissertation committee, um, and of course, it's every student's dream to surpass his teacher, but if your teacher's Tom Shelley, you just give up on that in a hurry. Um, so, so the, the next best ambition is to have a, have a student who's, who's way better than you are. Um, and uh, another thing I'm very proud of is that I served on John Calkins' dissertation committee, and I was really looking forward to being able to point out to Tom that, that you know, there aren't many things I do better than he, he does, but, but my student can think rings around his. Um, <laughs> and then Tom fell and broke a hip and a wrist. Uh, Alice uh, assures me that the doctors are optimistic that Tom is bearing up, that he'll be, he'll be back with us, but it, at 93, that's not something you travel after. So, uh, so he will not be able to, to join us. Um, but we were fortunate um, that Wayne Hall was available. So, uh, so we, have not, we have not lost quality at all. Um, so, John Hawkins, uh, Stephen Professor of Operations Research at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, is going to talk to us about cannabis as a temptation good. Uh, and then we're going to get comments from Wayne Hall, from Rob McCoon, and from David Cordray. Uh John, take it away. use 
of another dependence-inducing intoxicant and do so with the marketing savvy and clout in the political regime of Budweiser and the ethics of big tobacco. I view this talk as the fourth in a line of papers uh, where I've raised this concern about the corporate model of legalizing marijuana. Thanks. In uh, 2014, I wrote a piece in Washington Monthly where I suggested that it would be better for nonprofit organizations to be the ones who produce and distribute and who are charged with merely meeting existing demand to undercut the black market and not promoting additional demand. Last year, along with a bunch of co-authors who ran, many of whom are here, I wrote a report for the state of Vermont that laid out the full spectrum of options if you put extreme prohibition at this end and pure libertarian at the other end. There are steps like legalizing home growing and cannabis clubs that are only coming in a few steps. And the alcohol model is at the other end. And we are flying by quite a few intermediate models that might protect us from some of the downsides of the corporate approach. Earlier this year at the London School of Economics, I more or less conceded that we're going to go the corporate approach, but said that there is an opportunity to stack the deck in favor of protecting against the downsides by choosing an aggressive regulatory agency. I said there are really four main interest groups involved. There's the industry itself. There's government's interest in economic development and tax revenue. There are the great majority of cannabis users who are by and large happy and not harmed by their use, and then there's the much smaller number of people who have lost control of their use and are harmed by it. And that last group consumes the great bulk of the marijuana and is the source of the great bulk of the industry's uh, profits. And by the way, they tend to be less educated and poor and less politically powerful even per person. So the first three groups' interests align in favoring lenient regulations, easy access, product variety, and promotion. In industry and the casual user's interest align in favoring low taxes. It's only this smaller, politically weaker group whose interests are the opposite. And I suggested that it would be good if at the moment of legalization, before the industry is already politically powerful, and in that brief moment when busy politicians are focused on the issue, if we stack the deck in favor of a regulatory agency that would defend this last and vulnerable group against industry, because industry's interest is in trying to promote more and more use for those heavy users. Uh, now today I'm going to retreat one step farther. Um, you can call me a product of my generation or the times, but I really don't believe that government works for the public welfare. I believe it is more likely to cozy up to industry than to tame industry's bad impulses. Now I will grant that the FDA vis-a-vis -vis the tobacco industry is a model, but I think it's the exception that proves the rule. When I look across banking, airlines, alcohol, pharmaceuticals, and other sectors, I do not see great evidence of a highly competent government actively defending the vulnerable against corporate interest. So today I'm going to explore the idea of a different sort of break that might slow down corporate-driven promotion of problem use after legalization, and that is the idea to reconceptualize marijuana a little bit, as Mark said, not as the demon drug or the symbol of peace in progressive politics or the embodiment of generational conflict or a miracle cure for everything from Alzheimer's to Zika, but 
as what I will suggest as a temptation good, uh, a product or service that belongs in the category not with cocaine and heroin, but with gambling, prostitution, pornography, video games, sugary sodas, donuts, an indulgence that is not dangerous in moderation, but those, but, but that the moralists are correct to caution us can easily get out of control. Uh, and that we as a society would be better off if we recognized marijuana as such, as we're removing the physical barriers that protect us from temptation, we need to replace them with informal social norms that will protect those who would be vulnerable uh, from excess. So that's the punchline. Uh, now I'll try to deliver the talk. Uh, first, uh, some just definitions issues. Um, there are many things that are about legalization that are not legalization, things like eliminating mandatory minimum sentences. I'm not going to talk about that. They're not legalization. There are also, as I mentioned, many kinds of legalization. There we go. I guess. That's, that sounds so good. recreational marijuana use in the United States have also legalized large-scale production by for-profit corporations. Now, it is also true that no nation has yet legalized marijuana in this sense of the term. And let me repeat this because I think it's very important. Legalization for non-medical use in the United States today is about allowing large-scale production and promotion by for-profit corporations. We're headed in that direction, but neither the United States nor any other country has gotten there yet. Uh, Uruguay so far has only deployed home-growing and cannabis clubs, those are sort of old hat in compared to places like Spain. Even what they will start to do in the summer, which will be large-scale, is still under government control. Um, so we're talking about, or I'm talking today about something that has not happened yet, but I think it is going to happen. And I'm going to try to justify that with some maps, because I've learned that you can't give a talk about marijuana legalization without maps. <laughs> this is the industry's map. It shows that there are just a handful of holdout states in red, red being the universal color of danger. These are the pig-headed moralistic holdouts that don't see the virtues of the triumph of the 21st century's most important expansion of human rights and civil liberties. <laughs> this is Wikipedia's view, and uh, we all know that you can't trust Wikipedia, you can't cite it in academic work, and certainly can't bring it into a plenary talk. However, I think this complexity, even if some of the details are wrong, better captures the reality than that previous slide, sort of black and white, or red and green view. If I look just at medical, this map splits out CBD medical from THC medical, and you see that a big chunk of the country that is no longer red, supposedly, has legalized CBD. But CBD is not intoxicating, not dependence-inducing, and it's not even prohibited. If you do a word search on the Controlled Substances Act, it does not exist there. 
Even within these regimes, there's variety, though. In Georgia and Virginia, CBE-only laws do allow up to 5% THC, not just the 0.5% of the other states. And it's worth noting that 5% is higher than the average THC of all the cannabis the government seized up through 2000. And on the THC medical marijuana states, there's also enormous variety out there. Minnesota's is not like California's. But I think what we should really focus on is not the medical map, but the map of legalizing for recreational use. And here what you see is that so far it's just four states, and they are essentially the four most isolated states in the country. And that matters because marijuana flows across state borders. I know that's a shocker. I think we think that it flows across international borders fine, but we've somehow constructed the idea that we can have a laboratory of 50 independent states each doing their own thing. But that's not the case. The value to weight ratio of marijuana ensures that it will flow across state borders. One of the things I like to remind people is that a year's worth of marijuana for a heavy user weighs less than this one bottle of Diet Coke. We are all beginning to see those flows. We haven't seen them completely just because the industry is still just getting started. Um, those flows across state borders will soon become more important. The map also shows the places where we expect legalization to be pursued later this year. They include very big states like California, a country unto itself. They include small states in the center of the population in the eastern part of the United States. When we did the report for Vermont, it noted that there are 40 times as many marijuana users near Vermont, but outside its borders, as there are inside Vermont. So this current map is not stable. I, there is, I suppose, some chance the genie could go back in the bottle. I doubt it. But we will not stop with just four states or seven states. Once your neighbor has legalized, that undercuts all the benefits of prohibition without giving you any of the benefits of legalization. So we are on a pathway that's going to go towards nationwide or maybe a few holdouts uh, legalization of cannabis. And it doesn't mean it's going to be uniform everywhere. I mean, here's a map of alcohol. But there are some states that involve the government in control of the distribution, particularly of spirits. Uh, my state's one of the few that has the government involved beyond just hard spirits, and Pennsylvania will probably drop its control regime soon. And there's even outright prohibition at the county level. The red dots are the counties that are dry. The yellow are the counties that have towns in them that are dry. I used to live in a dry city outside of Pittsburgh. It has since stopped being dry because it's one of the economic benefits of being able to host the bars instead of having their citizens go across borders. And beyond just outright control, you can ask questions like, can you buy alcohol on a Sunday? Depends where you live. Can you consume alcohol walking down the street? That also depends on where you live. So I'm not suggesting that we are going to have uniform marijuana legalization around the country, but I do think that we will have the marijuana equivalent of this last map, which shows the state taxes. Oh, goodness. There we go. That's the state taxes on beer. And the first point is that every single state has a tax on beer because in every single state, anybody over the age of 21 can buy beer, and basically anybody over the age of 16 can get it, even though they can't buy it directly. And the second point is that Tennessee really stands out here for having by far the highest tax at 66 cents a six-pack. 
11 cents a can, and the vast majority of the country has much lower taxes than that. And this is, I think, where we're going with marijuana. Nationwide, there will be variation on things like whether you can have dabs and regulations over edibles, but everywhere there will be availability for purchase by people 21 and over at low prices, basic marijuana. So if that's where we're headed in terms of policy, then the next question is what does that imply in terms of marijuana use, abuse independence, tax revenues, job creation, and so on? What will the world look like when there's a Budweiser for marijuana funds? And Peter Reuter and Robert Boone tried to answer that question some time ago with a wonderful book, Drug War Heresies, but 2001, they only had one data point of legalization to work with, and that was the Dutch coffee shop regime. So at that point, learning from other times, places, and vices left them understandably fairly agnostic as to what would happen if our country moved all the way across the horizontal axis to full legalization. It's hard to draw a regression line through, through just one point. Now, today, we have many more data points, so there is some optimism that we ought to be able to project the consequences of full legalization better, but I think this is the picture of where we are today. Yes, there are more data points, but they are still clustered at the left-hand side where it's essentially close to full prohibition. No nation has legalized nationwide alcohol model yet, and that federal prohibition matters. You'll hear a lot in the next couple days about things like tax implications of 280E, lack of access to banking services. But more fundamentally, big tobacco companies and the big alcohol companies do not get into this industry yet because it is still federally banned. For that matter, honest to goodness, black dirt Iowa farmers are not out there competing in this industry yet, but they will. And even after national legalization, it will take decades, not just two years, to see the full effect. So I think we should think about national legalization as like a radical technological innovation that drives down the production cost and also other aspects of the industry. But on the production cost, this is what's happening with prices in Washington state. Market declines. Even after it seems like it's somewhat plateauing, those are still declines of 25% per year. And if you try to build models of what the industry's cost structure will look like under different regimes, you get pictures that look like this. On the far left is the farm gate price under full prohibition of a pound of high quality marijuana. The next three bars are the situation just before Colorado and Washington legalized, the sort of gray, nebulous medical marijuana regime. There's a bar out there for medical marijuana in the Netherlands, fully legal but does not achieve economies of scale, it's highly regulated. And as you move further across, it's what you can anticipate the production cost structure to look like after national legalization, when it's just going to be farmed the same way that tomatoes and cucumbers are. Uh, but the legalization is going to be impactful not only on production costs, it's also going to affect industry structure, the size of firms that are operating practices. So to appreciate that, I want you to think for a minute about how well you could have predicted the impact of aviation on American society in 1905, two years after Orville and Wilbur Wright's flight, Remember, two years after the stores opened in Colorado and Washington. or how well could you have predicted the information revolution in 1956, two years after the invention of the silicon transistor? 
Now you might say those are really true technological innovations. That's not a fair comparison. But a closer comparison might be the invention of machine-rolled cigarettes in the late 19th century. Cigarettes had been around for a long time before that, but the industry really took off when the machine rolling radically reduced the labor necessary to create a cigarette, and consumption grew spectacularly after that. But you could say some of that wasn't directly the result of the machine rolled cigarettes in the 1920s and 1930s. The great big tobacco companies in search of greater profits aggressively marketed to women who had not at that point become a large market for cigarettes. And I would say, yeah, that's right. It's not directly the result of the invention of the machine-rolled cigarette, but it is indirectly the result of it. Why were the corporations out there trying to create new markets? Because that's what for-profit corporations do. Why were there big for-profit corporations? Because machine rolling created economies of scale that led to bigger firms. And as production costs went down, the key to success became more about marketing, not just production. And there are many industries that you can do this. This is, I lived for a while in the Middle East. Life in deserts has been radically transformed by reverse osmosis desalination. The old thermal approach to desalination was very expensive. The curve in the upper left shows the decline in the cost of desalination. The curve on the right shows the increase in the use of it. Another comparison might be deregulation of the railroad industry. And these graphs are on different, uh, different time scales, but I tried to line them up so that just past halfway is the moment of deregulation of railroads. The bottom graph shows the amount of railroad freight, and it was basically flat throughout the whole post-World War II period until deregulation. Top graph shows how that cut prices and led also to an increase in use. Same kind of story for uh, wind power generation. This is a combination of technological innovations, not just one, but it shows the same pattern of, of big increases in use. So I think that we should expect that legalization will greatly increase use. I don't know how much, in fact, uh, with some people in this room, have you written papers that said, we cannot know how much. But for purpose of this talk, let's just suppose it's a doubling. And a doubling is not crazy. Consumption of marijuana in the United States has already doubled between 2004 and 2014 during the period of liberalizing medical use. So a further doubling seems entirely plausible. What does that mean? Well, it depends on where we are today. And this is the five-line derivation of the cannabis market in the United States. Um, along with Rand colleagues, we managed to write 400-page reports that basically find the same thing. <laughs> Americans willingly self-report 328 million past-month days of use in household surveys. Multiplied by 12, that's one of those fancy RAND mathematical techniques. And, and, and you get to 4 billion days of use in the year. Fudge up by maybe 25% because there's a little bit of underreporting in surveys. Multiply by 1.3 grams per day of use, which is the average, and you get 6,500 metric tons. And that's probably the average price, about $7 a gram, because this is a mix of the commercial grade and uh, the high quality. So that's, that's sort of what the market looks like. But it is Sunday morning, and we live in a, are in a country that doesn't speak metric. So 
I think a better way to think about this is in hours of intoxication. So take the 6,500 metric tons, <laughs> divide it by 0.4 grams per joint, multiply by 2.5 hours of intoxication per joint, and you've got 40 billion hours of intoxication today. And so a doubling of consumption would mean an additional 40 billion hours. Now, some of you might be saying, ah, it's 2.5 hours, it's not that long, but I do want to note, this is one person consumes the entire joint, and it would work out to having about 40 milligrams of THC. This is a straight lab study of what happens when you give people 40 milligrams of THC, 45 actually, the triangles. Uh, there are perceptions of intoxication and, and impairment for driving purposes. All I want you to see in this graph, and I know it's hard to read, is that the horizontal axis is measured in hours. So it is not crazy to think that a joint consumed by a single person when it's reasonably high potency can produce 2.5 hours of, of influence. And maybe intoxication isn't the word you want to use, but, but it's the acute consequences of recent consumption, whatever we want to call that. And so my first major point is that that consequence of marijuana legalization is by far the most important marijuana-specific consequence of legalization. There may be indirect effects on alcohol. There may be indirect effects on tobacco smoking that are more important. But if we are looking at marijuana-specific effects, the change in consumption is the most important consequence. I mean, some of you are saying, oh, no, 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 getting all those nonviolent marijuana offenders out of prison, that's the big deal. Well, it's not. 30 or 40,000 marijuana offenders in prison times $40,000 per cell a year, that's like $1.5 billion. That's nothing compared to 40 billion hours. The valuation of an hour of marijuana intoxication is hard to work out even here so close to Wall Street. The Wall Street Journal doesn't cite a market rate for an hour of intoxication, but I would suggest it's, it's on the order of a dollar or five dollars an hour. Um, now, I don't know whether it's positive or negative, but I think it's on that order. And five dollars an hour times 40 billion hours, 200 billion, is way bigger than one and a half billion dollars associated with incarceration. And I do think that the people who dislike marijuana use would view the cost at a dollar an hour or a few dollars an hour. And conversely, the, the, the people who think that marijuana use is wonderful and a source of pleasure and entertainment would value it at a dollar or five dollars an hour. That, that is what we pay, or less than what we pay to go to the movies. So even modest valuations on intoxication times 40 billion hours of intoxication swamps the outcome of nobody in prison. It swamps the outcome of fewer arrests. 700,000 arrests times, pick your number, 2,000, 3,000 dollars per arrest. That's still in the one and a half, two billion dollar range. Fewer zeros than this effect. Some of you are interested in the health consequences. Marijuana legalization will lead to greater demands on the treatment system. Yes, but if we double the number of treatments, have 300,000 extra treatments a year at 3,000 dollars a piece, that's not even a billion. That's fewer zeros. The real marijuana-specific consequence of legalization is going to be an increase in use. People who like marijuana use should like marijuana legalization. People who don't should not. So this raises the question of what is the use like that is going to be going up? 
So I am a professor, as Mark said, so I have to give a quiz to make sure everybody's still awake, and here is the quiz. What proportion of the American marijuana market is accounted for by adults with no abuse or dependence problem and who use on fewer than 10 days a month? Well, that last line is odd, let me explain it. What I'm trying to do is adults with no abuse or dependence problem who only use on weekends, so they're not using on days when they work. But I don't know which day of the week they use. So less than 10 days a month is my proxy for not using on, on work days. And I am fairly serious. I would like you all to either write it down or whisper to the person next to you, but commit yourself to what do you think that number is. I hate it when there are smart, grand people in the audience. All right, Rosalie, here's the answer. You stole my punchline. That one-third of marijuana users consumes 2% of the marijuana. 2%. Adults with no abuse or dependence problem who are using every weekend day or less often are utterly irrelevant for the industry. 2% of the market. Because daily and near-daily users absolutely dominate consumption. This is graph many of you have probably seen before. The bottom of the bars in dark, that's daily users, and the little stripes above it are near-daily, 21 or more days a month. Looking at the far left column, there are only one in five people who use marijuana. Moving over a column, there are one in three past month users. Move over another column, they are two out of three days of use, but they also use more grams per day of use. The far right-hand column, more than 80% of the consumption. If you look just at the black bar on the far right, people who say they use every single day consume more than 50% of the marijuana in the United States. In a very literal sense, more than half the marijuana consumed in the United States is consumed by people who spend more than half of their waking hours under the influence of marijuana. And that is because of a spectacular increase in daily and near-daily use. It has grown by a factor of eight over the last generation. Back in 1992, alcohol utterly dominated marijuana. Top line alcohol, bottom line marijuana. In 1992, there were fully 10 times as many daily or near-daily alcohol users as marijuana users in the United States. But the pattern of marijuana use has changed. It's gone from being like alcohol, one in 10 used daily or near-daily, to now nearly 40%. It's moving to being used more like tobacco. Now the ratio of alcohol to marijuana daily and near-daily use has fallen below two to one. So one way to get your head around what the market is like is half of it is by people who have an abuse or dependence problem or who have been in treatment in the past on something. So this includes alcoholics use of marijuana. And the other half is adults who don't report enough problems in surveys to qualify for DSM-4 definitions of abuse or dependence. The kids who are not daily users are not a big part of the story. And if we slice this more finely to factor in the frequency of use, then that left-hand half splits out like this. Only that very thin wedge at the top are those less than 10-day-a-month adult users. 
The great bulk of the wedge that's not abuse or dependence is daily or near daily use. So as we look forward to this increase of 40 billion or so hours of additional intoxication, we really have to think hard about that last piece. Presumably most of us would agree that the right-hand half is not bringing joy and happiness. When people with a medically diagnosable abuse and dependence problem are using more intoxicants, it's not usually seen as a triumph. The left-hand side, what about the people who use daily or near daily but say they have no problems? What we hope is that they're going to be like the caffeine consumers in this comic. The guy says, I usually start my day with two cups of espresso, four cans of Red Bull, and a jolt of Coke. Some days that just isn't enough. Tolerance can be very great, and apparently, you know, these people are still successful, they're still wearing ties, they're still showing up to work. So, hopefully, marijuana legalization will bring a lot more daily and near-daily use like that. And to illustrate the extent to which tolerance may help protect, let me show you the two graphs that are admittedly a little bit hard to read, especially if I can't get them to show at all. There we go. Um, now, this is a graph for occasional marijuana users who are exposed to a dose of THC at time zero in the middle, and you see that THC soars up and then come rapidly crashing back down. THC doesn't stay in the bloodstream long, which is why it doesn't correlate with any sort of impairment. The other two lines that stay high for hours are intoxication, good, they're happy, and confusion, bad, they're not going to function as well. For the inexperienced users, the two lines that persist for hours persist in almost the same way. The same study did the exact same thing for experienced users. And then just to wake you up on Sunday morning, it actually presented it in mirror image. So now dropping down a long ways is a big positive effect. And again, you see that there's a very sharp spike in THC after you take marijuana. No shock, no surprise there and the THD goes away very quickly. The intoxication line persists for hours. It doesn't persist quite as long as for occasional users, but it does persist. But the confusion line does not. In fact, the confusion line never really moves off zero. So at least with respect to those two particular outcomes, you have what you're hoping for. Lots of fun, no harm. <laughs> I absolutely grant that there are hundreds of thousands of people who can hold their THC just as there are many alcoholics who can hold their alcohol very well. I am not, I am worried though that there are also going to be hundreds of thousands of people in the legalization regime who use daily and your daily less successfully than that crap implies. Uh, you can call me a pessimist, you can call me a worrier, maybe you can call me a parent of teenagers. <laughs> and I do want to tell a little story about my three teenagers, because I'm a parent, that maybe bears on, on my views on this. And it has to do with drug testing and competitive interscholastic events. My daughter is an athlete. She's in track, pole vault, javelin, chop foot. She's never yet been drug tested for steroids, but that's just because she's only in ninth grade. I presume that if she progresses to higher levels of competition, she will be drug tested, and that makes perfect sense. Because steroids truly are a performance-enhancing drug when it comes to athletic performance, and her team would have an unfair advantage if her coach was slipping her steroids and the other team didn't get them. My sons competed in the chess team and the debate team. 
neither of them were drug tested, even though they are older and progressed to more advanced levels of competition. Apparently, the other team wasn't worried that Jay's chess coach was slipping him cannabis to help him plot more moves in a head in the chess game. And apparently, Joseph's debate coach, no one had to worry that she was slipping him cannabis to help him be able to concisely articulate the analytic points with which he tried to win the debate. And, you know, there's this sense of, this is silly, and that's right. It's silly because steroids are a performance-enhancing drug for physical activities. Marijuana is not a performance-enhancing drug for intellectual activities. It is a performance-degrading drug, at least in terms of acute intoxication. I'm not talking here about 20 years later a change in IQ. I'm just talking about while you're under the influence. And remember, more than half of the cannabis is consumed by people who spend more than half of their waking hours under the influence. So I do worry about this increase in use inevitably being an increase in daily use. But I do know that this is a very different worry than for the other illegal drugs. Or for that matter, the legal drugs. Because it's an internality, it's an impact on the user, not on anyone else. So alcohol does hurt alcohol users, but it has a lot of externalities, violence, traffic crashes, so there's a public interest in trying to reduce alcohol use. Uh, cocaine, crack, meth, the powerful stimulants, they harm the user, they create externalities. Uh, but the big thing that's scary about them is an internality, which Mark has called a behavioral toxicity. You, you hear these stories, presumably apocryphal, of the, of the mom who sells her baby to get money to buy crack, and the progressive response to that is, we'll legalize crack because then it would be cheap. But the conservative response is to worry a little bit when a consumer good becomes so compelling that a parent could value it more than a kid. And so we do still, I think, plan to continue to control those. Heroin is mostly about internalities. Illegal heroin creates externalities like crime, but if we legalized heroin, it would mostly be internalities. It would mostly just be harming the users, but in a particularly uh, dramatic way. It could, it could kill them immediately from overdose. And uh, from a libertarian perspective, you could say, who cares? People should be able to kill themselves. But as a practical matter, society, I think, continues to think that opiates should be controlled. Tobacco is a little bit like heroin. Yeah, secondhand smoke is unhealthy for other people, so there's an externality. But the biggest impacts of tobacco use are on the smoker, and they are medical. They are emphysema, lung cancer, death, albeit in the long run, and so on. Marijuana's got none of that. Marijuana is not killing people. It's not creating much in the way of externalities. It's mostly creating internalities, and they are not medical internalities, certainly not death. So even if illegal marijuana has traditionally been put on this slide and compared to those things, what I'm suggesting today is that legal marijuana needs instead to be thought of on this slide with these things that I call temptation goods some of which are morally laden, prostitution, gambling, and lottery tickets, and I think marijuana will continue to be morally loaded for another 15 years. Some are just time sinks, like video games. We have two uh, different families, friends of ours back in Pittsburgh, whose oldest sons are a year older than my oldest son, both of whom uh, failed in college, fundamentally because they were unable to discipline themselves 
to not spend very many hours per day on video games once they had left the structured environment of their family of origin. Now, reality TV maybe is in there. Or we could compare it to consumables, because you do are consuming. So this is where uh, soda, relevant in New York since they tried the soda tax here, uh, donuts, death by chocolate cake. So what, what I'm, I hear a particular laugh coming from one friend of mine for whom this may be a, a singular temptation. <laughs> So my suggestion is that uh, we think about legalized marijuana in this class of products and services, these temptation goods, that generate few direct tangible externalities, but with which the users have complex relationships, and those temptations can harm the minority of people who lose control. So I see I'm out of time. I will close with uh, just a couple of quotes. May West said, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. And there's an ancient wisdom, it's easier to avoid temptation than to resist it. By deciding to legalize corporate-produced cannabis, we are throwing out that old wisdom of protecting ourselves from being surrounded by temptation. The children of today are going to go through their adolescence and young adulthood living in worlds where marijuana is cheap, ubiquitous, and heavily marketed. We've taken away the avoid temptation strategy, and I am suggesting that it's our obligation to construct informal social norms to take the place of those formal social controls that are being removed to try to protect them the minority of them that might lose control. Most people can occasionally have death by chocolate cake without a problem, but obesity is a real issue in this country. Most people are very happy with their cannabis use, but I think there will be a substantial number of people who are going to be harmed by this corporate commercialized regime that we are creating. Thank you. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you giant, you own it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it.